Ladies and gentlemen, this is already the 50th episode of the NK News broadcast. And today, on December the 14th, we are going to do something a little bit special. We've selected five of the most listened to episodes. And we'll give you a little selection of each one selected by our audio producer, Arius Dare, and introduced by me. Okay, first off, uh, by far the most listened to podcast was my interview with former consul to the DPRK Embassy in London, Taeyong Ho, in episode 22. It was logistically challenging to organize this one because Ted doesn't travel alone. He comes with a retinue of people who ensure his security at all times. Uh, we had to temporarily set up the recording facilities in the main newsroom of NK News and not in the usual hermetically sealed and soundproof studio. I had literally dozens of questions to ask him, but Ted is a slow talker and he likes to give lots of details. Uh, and he also had a subsequent appointment to get to, so I had to end the interview at one hour with uh, many questions unanswered. And and after this recording, I read his memoir, all 450 or so pages of it, uh, and it gave me many more questions to ask him. So I really hope that we can have him back uh, for a second show next year. All right, let's listen to a segment from that interview. If there are, there are more, you know, the dialogues and the more channels of uh, exchanges, corporations, North Korean people may have more opportunity to hear and view, for instance, hundreds of North Koreans visited Pyeongchang Olympics. And I am sure that they must, must be surprised to see all the achievements made by South Koreans, you know. And inside North Korea, there are huge changes are taking place. For instance, the people's demand for the freedom is increasing. Capitalist marketization is going on and the people's uh, demand for South Korean cultural content is also increasing. So even though Kim Jong-un tries very hard to prevent the outside informations, but now this process cannot be you know, stopped. The best choice for Kim Jong-un and his family is to quit the leadership and let the North Korean people have their own right to choose. He should not continue to instruct. It's the way of the life you know, North Korean people should do. This year, I interviewed two people who lived in Pyongyang at the time. One was uh, Ms. Ambreen Mustafa, the, who is the wife of the current Pakistani ambassador to Pyongyang. And that interview was episode 25 uh, and was one of my personal favorites. The other was with Ms. Martina orberg Somoji, who was the deputy head of mission at the Swedish embassy in Pyongyang for two years. Uh, that was in episode 40. Both of these episodes were well liked by the listeners and I enjoyed interviewing both women a lot. So it was difficult to choose one of the two for the top five. But in the end, I went with uh, Martina's interview. It was really interesting to be able to learn about the mechanics of doing diplomacy with North Koreans from within the country. Martina gave a great insight into working in a very, very different environment to that of any other country. Uh, and because of concerns about her talking openly while still working in the North, we had to record her interview in July uh, but hold its broadcast over until September after she had left Pyongyang for good. So let's listen to a segment from that interview. There is a, a concern among donors that they don't need or they don't get to do 
enough amounts of monitoring and they don't get enough access to projects uh, in the DPRK. We also share these concerns at times, but I find that it's also a bit of an unfortunate, almost catch-22 situation where less engagement means less access, which in turn sort of sets off a downward spiral. And and coming back to, to the problems that you raised, so, so, I mean, you can definitely argue that there are projects that should over time have been taken over by the DPRK government. From the Swedish side, we make the distinct distinction between humanitarian aid and development assistance. Mm-hmm. And in focusing on the humanitarian aid, the focus is on the needs of the people. And that has convinced us, at least, that as long as the needs remain, then, then if we can, we should keep offering the humanitarian assistance. September 9th every year is the Democratic People's Republic of Korea's celebration of its founding in 1948. This year marked 70 years since that day, and the party was a big one. Chad O'Carroll and Oliver Hotham from NK News went to North Korea for an eight-day trip to cover those festivities. This podcast, episode 37, was recorded the day after their return and was rush-edited by our super post-production producer-come-editor Arius Dare so that it could be uploaded the very same day. The NK News managing director and senior editor were tired from their trip but ebullient and ready to talk, and they had lots to say about a parade that was light on military and heavy on good feelings, and also on the mass gymnastics display that they saw uh, just a week or two uh, before President Moon Jae-in went to do the same thing. So let's listen to a segment of that podcast. Well, I thought it was interesting. It was kind of the first time that we've seen the North Koreans kind of flip the messaging a little bit. So in the past, you go to North Korea and you kind of just always hear the same things, right? About <clears throat> American aggression and the state of war and all this stuff. But the North Koreans really seem to have kind of tried to tailor a message for international journalists. And that message was essentially about um, diplomacy. They were very keen to talk about how there were no more anti-US posters on the streets. And you'd Mm. ask them about that and they'd say, well, those posters will be gone as long as diplomacy continues. Um, We went to the International Friendship Exhibition and there was one room that was just full of pictures of uh, Kim Jong-un meeting with Moon Jae-in and Donald Trump. Um, And they were also very keen to emphasize this economic angle. So they're essentially... In April, Kim Jong-un made this speech where he said, you know, our nuclear program is complete. We're just going to focus on the economy now. And they are really, really pushing that. Almost everyone you would speak to on the streets would mention it. North Koreans, minders would talk about it all the time. And then in the visits that we went, you know, factories, um, schools with new technology, they were really trying to promote this idea that, well, now we're shifting towards economic development, Mm. which was interesting in that that's what they're trying to emphasize, but also interesting in the fact that they were able to kind of have a new message and that they clearly kind of worked on this is going to be our message which is kind of rare for North Korea to but at the same time there were a few things we did see that like were almost either relics from the past Mm. or suggest there could be some kind of outer inner track of of domestic facing propaganda so for example in one of the factories we went to just around the corner, there was a big poster which had the Hwasong 15 ICBM mm. on it. Inside, next to the cafeteria, we saw uh, photos of the Hwasong 12 and some rocket artillery system. And one of our colleagues from Reuters, I, I think it was at the uh, cosmetics factory, mm. he lost his minders and went upstairs and opened a door and just walked into a room just full of anti-American propaganda, tried to take photos and the minders were like stopping him. 
So you've got to wonder, like, do... And, and one of the diplomats we spoke to in the DPRK also said he'd seen about 20 cases of, of anti-American stuff in the, la- the last month or so mm. uh, sort of hidden away. And it does raise a question, is it is it is it for show? Or is it just a mistake? There's obviously so much to, to yeah. cleanse. Yeah. But you'd think that factories that journalists are being taken to would really have a, a deep scrub of all that stuff if that is the, the clear message that they need to project. One would expect that. How many foreign journalists, roughly speaking, did you see there? Uh, there was there was 130 in total, ah. um, uh, maybe from about 60 or 70 outlets, I'd say. And uh, yeah, a lot of friendship groups as well. The, uh, everything from the like wildly sycophantic um, groups to more, you know, left-leaning, uh, yeah. anti-imperialist struggle type stuff. And we were all together in the Yangakta Hotel. They cleared out all that tourists. hotel of tourists, put them all in the choreo, mm. the little smaller ones. So it was mainly just that hotel was just international press and the friendship groups. Um, which was an interesting mix. Which was an interesting mix. When I visited Australia last year, my friend and guest on episode 33, Bronwyn Dalton, introduced me to a group of young North Korean refugees who were studying English in Sydney for six months. And the one who spoke the best English invited her friend Jenny to come on podcast episode 28. This podcast was the first time in this series that the voices of women from North Korea were heard directly. They told me about their family backgrounds and their hopes for the future. This episode was recorded after the June summit between, between President Trump and Chairman Kim and after two summit meetings between President Moon and Chairman Kim. So we discussed their reaction to that and the different atmosphere on the Korean Peninsula. Both women are now university graduates and they have particular goals for the roles that they see themselves playing in inter-Korean relations in the future. So let's listen to a segment from that episode. Couldn't believe. And then it's not the, the negative way, it's positive yeah. way. When the Kim Jong-un, he admitted and oh, our road and then you railways. Know, railways it's really poor so i don't want to see that that's one sentence mm-hmm. makes me that's the i think you know everyone talking about the the, the what is it called again like, the, their moon and then mm-hmm. mr mr moon and then mr kim and they walk together yeah. the, and that's the everyone talking about that i for me yeah. i i i think the best moment i kept so when he admit we have a, such a poor infrastructure, yes. that's the one sentence. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, maybe this is a, the his attitude, or maybe this is something different than previous one. Right. So that's why I'm pretty optimistic about mm-hmm. the summit. With yeah, my last pick for the top five was my interview with Anna Fifield, who had just finished a stint reporting on Korea and Japan for the Washington Post. I interviewed her on episode 20 about her many years of reporting on North Korea and her trips to that country, and especially her significant opus published by the Washington Post late in 2017 called Life Under Kim Jong-un. We also got into the weeds of North Korea and foreign policy being a male-centric culture dominated by mannels of wise old men intoning on important things. I've been lucky to know Anna for over a decade, so it was a very comfortable interview to do, even though it was super hot in the studio and the air, condition, <laughs> the air conditioning wasn't working. 
Anna has 100,000 or more Twitter followers, so I had high hopes that her tweeting about this podcast episode would lead to a massive spike in listenership. It didn't quite do that, but maybe this repeat will help. Yeah, I think North Korea has changed enormously. Uh, and the most striking change to me is the emergence of the Jangmadang. You know, that is the single biggest thing that has changed in North Korea over this time. Obviously, markets emerged during the famine when the uh, regime had no choice but to tolerate them because they just could not feed people themselves. And this kind of entrepreneurial activity began to emerge. But it's really taken off under Kim Jong-un. Like every town and city has a thriving market now uh, you know you you can buy anything you want you know the old saying during the famine what used to be you know you can buy anything in the market except cat's horns uh-huh. right so now maybe you know I wouldn't be surprised if there's some market somewhere where you can buy cat's horns at least something labeled a cat's horn yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah that's right so this I think is a really powerful force for change because it is enabling North Koreans to fend for themselves, you know, to earn their own money. It's, uh, you know, there's this private economy that's sprung up. It's loosening their dependence on the regime and it's loosening the regime's one of the levers of control that they have Mm -hmm. over people. Obviously, all of this is done with the tacit approval or tolerance of the state. You know, nothing gets done without that. But the, the fact that these markets exist, that's such a high proportion of North Koreans earn their living through Mm -hmm. these markets now is a really big uh, change in North Korea. And I think, you know, that genie can't be put back in the bottle. This is a trend that is going to continue. And that's all for episode 50, in which I reviewed my top five favorite episodes from the last 50. And in the next two weeks, we have uh, two things, special things coming up. One is an interview with a former U.S. ambassador to South Korea. And another is a very important discussion about women's menstrual health in North Korea. My thanks, as always, to Arias Dare and Christina Lee for their excellent work in producing this podcast together with me. Please share this with your friends so that we can keep growing and make worthwhile podcasts well into the future. Let's do this again for episode 100. <laughs>